You're listening to The Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. How many threads intersect the lives of many people? Out of the darkness into the light, I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. On this episode, we start with a conversation with a good friend of mine and consider as a writer, I know him well, Joseph Cannon. His new book is called The Berlin Exchange. And after the break, Kevin Baker stops by to talk about the new HBO series, The Gilded Age. New York Times Book Review said, Cannon has mastered the art of historical thrillers. And Joe Cannon, it's nice to see you again. And vice versa. So here's where I'd like to start with, because what I try to do is, and I'm going to take issue with something that was in the recent New York Times book review. In fact, I'll share it now, and then we'll go from there. And the author said, was a Nobel laureate, it seems to me that the author plays a kind of secondary role in this whole business of literature. Authors are generally less interesting than their books. What I try to do, explore with all the writers, I think there's two stories, Joe. The first one is inside the covers of the book. The second one is about the author themselves and the origin story and the genesis of how they became what they are today. So take us back as early as you want to, leading up to what you're doing now, because I think you've had a really interesting life prior to sitting down and becoming a writer. Well, I think you're probably referring, I was for a long time, and I guess I remain a poster boy for midlife career change, because for most of my life, um, I was a publisher, I worked in publishing. And then 25 years ago, I was on holiday in the Southwest and I was interested in World War II, so I visited Los Alamos. And it just struck me as an extraordinary place. It was technically non-existent during the war. If you were part of the Manhattan Project, you just fell off the planet and were not to be seen again. And I thought, what was that like for the people who were living there? And then occurred to me, what would happen if there had been a crime? How would they ever go about solving it in a place that did not technically exist? Nobody was allowed up on the mountain. And it seemed to me a clever premise, a good idea. And my first reaction with uh, instinct was to say, because I was still in publishing, who can I give it to? Who's looking for an idea who's between books or, you know, might be intrigued by this. But somehow there wasn't anybody perfectly suited to that. And I got more and more interested in involved. And the more I did, the more I thought, well, why don't you write it? So I did it secretly. I thought I had never written before, and I thought, what would be more embarrassing than a publisher who can't write? Huh. Forever at parties say, oh, I hear you're working on something. So I never told anybody. Um, it's luckily one of those stories that has a happy ending because I did book. Uh, it worked. It enabled me to become a full-time writer, which I hadn't realized that I would like so much. So I just crossed over the desk and went into this end of it. Happily, I must say. When, I, ten ago. when I get the book, it's a finished project, even if it's an advanced reader's copy. It's basically a finished project. Going back to the origins of what you did to become a writer, what was it like for the first time to put that first word, that first sentence on a piece of paper and then saying to yourself, I'm a writer? Well, you know, you don't do it right away. I mean, I, I must say it was with, I, I'd been around books all my life, and so it wasn't intimidating. It was, uh, and I have great respect for it. So I thought, if it isn't any good, I'll just put it in a drawer somewhere and never mind. But I think 
you know, when you finally get the book and hold it in your hand and you think, good heavens, it's it's a real concrete object. It's something that you've produced. Um, it's a kick. It's really a thrill. And I'll tell you what is also really fun is if you're lucky enough to be translated and you get a copy of foreign edition and you go, gosh, you know, here I am in Greek or it's me in French. And the whole thing has a kind of a really satisfying moment. It's just terrific. As for, uh, you know, it, it's not a transferable skill set. I mean, I think when you sit down and face a piece of paper, you sit down the way anybody does. And whether you've been in publishing or around books, your life doesn't really matter. I mean, either you can write or you can't. Um, you know, it's a, it's a very stern taskmaster in that sense. You don't bring to it a lot of um, advantages having been, if anything, it's a disadvantage right. because you're more critical, learn to be more critical. You mentioned, I think this is the first time we ever had a conversation and we met was for Los Alamos. Since that is a terrific book, your first book, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, did you have the Berlin Exchange always in your back pocket because you're dealing with spies and nuclear secrets? And I wonder if this was the time, and I'm still thinking about bookending Los Alamos with your new book, The Berlin Exchange. Well, there is a similarity. There, There is a um, see-through line in the sense that it's a nuclear physicist who's the protagonist. But you know, Larry, the, the way these things, it's not as formalized as we would imagine. It's really one thing leads to the next. Um, when I wrote Los Alamos, did I have any idea that I would write about Berlin? No, not then. Um, as it happens, this is the third novel I've done that's set in Berlin. First was The Good German, which was the summer of 45, when Berlin is completely devastated and flat. Right, right. The second was Leaving Berlin, which takes place during the airlift and as the city is beginning to rupture into two ideological camps, 1948-49. And this one, of course, is 1963, and so in a sense, it's my wall book. It's it's the period of the wall. I don't know that there will be another, but Berlin for me is the gift that keeps giving, or at least the location that keeps giving, because I never seem to run out of enthusiasm for stories from it. It's, it's just an amazing city. You mentioned The Good German, became a movie, George Clooney, Kate Blanchett. And then I think of another movie, which I've talked about in a previous guest, um, Tom Hanks' movie, The Bridge of Spies. Both of those are interesting stories. Did you think about them at all? But your book became a major movie. The Bridge of Spies was a major movie, kind of addressing the same thing in a general sense. Yeah, very much. In the course of writing this current one, The Berlin Exchange, um, I thought a lot about Bridge of Spies because it begins, in fact, with a spy swap, um, not unlike the one that features in A Bridge of Spies. And I didn't want to copy it, and I didn't want people to feel that it was in any way a Romana Cleo imitative. So I have my spy swap set up at a very different cross point, checkpoint. But the the Gleinicker Bridge still exists. You can go, you can walk across it, just be like Tom Hanks or anybody in the movie and exchange your own spy. I mean, it's physically right there. And in fact, I think on my website, there's a photograph of me on that bridge. But this whole notion of spy swap was very much behind some of the genesis for the current book. I thought, what's that like? In this particular instance, what we have is a nuclear physicist who, when he was at Los Alamos, so there's your connection, um, 
he traded and leaked secrets to the Soviets for ideological and, in his mind, idealistic reasons. He thought he was doing the right thing. He later went to work at the British Los Alamos at Harwell right. in Britain and was caught. His life then falls apart. He's sent to prison, the maximum 14-year sentence. Had he been in America, he might have been electrocuted as the Rosenbergs were in Britain. It has to active, be a time of active wartime for it to be a capital crime. So he is being killed. Nevertheless, he's just put in 10 years in prison. And now, somewhere out of the blue, he is offered chance. He's offered to be one of these spy swaps that they're going to swap for him. He doesn't know who's asked. He doesn't know why. He doesn't know whose agenda he's serving. But for him, this is a great release. And I thought it would be one of the great ironies at this time in 1963 when everybody is crossing, is trying to get out of East Berlin and crossing to the West for freedom, that we have a character who actually, by crossing into the East, becomes free. He's let out of prison. He's going to be reunited with a family he hasn't seen in 10 years. It's, an, it's a chance, a chance for him to set up a new life. So he grabs at it, but with certain consequences. Right. Early on says to him, maybe you're just exchanging one prison for the next. And in East Berlin, that pretty much turns out to be the case. If you're just joining us, my guest is Joseph Cannon. The book is called, the new book is called The Berlin Exchange. Just, it's just come out in a few, a few days ago, I believe. So we're getting at the beginning of all the interviews you're going to be doing. As a writer, this is what is interesting to me. Is it more challenging to put your characters into a box or extricate them out of that box? Or, in a sense, my take of the book, amazed. We're not quite sure where everybody is. It takes a while to figure it out. But as a writer, what you did um, made me think a lot about how you structured this book. It's, you know, to me, the, the least interesting part is the plotting. But I think it's certainly interesting to readers. And so you have to be good about that and careful and take it seriously and, you know, provide that format. But to me, what it's really about is, is what you said in the beginning of that. It, it's about the characters. I think one of the reasons I'm drawn to spies as characters and just the world of espionage in general is that ultimately the question that I think most literature is asking is, who are we? Right. With the other, how can we ever know another person? And if you can empathetically put yourself in someone else's shoes, which I think is what writing at its best does for us, um, you've accomplished something quite extraordinary. But with spies, this is raised to an exponential level because they're living a lie. There's not just this dichotomy between the public self and the private self that we all one way or another have. A spy is constantly lying. Um, often to his spouse, almost invariably to his children, colleagues. He's living a lie. And I thought this is the most dramatic form of that public-private divide that we see in everybody. So let's explore that a little more, if you don't mind. If you're living a lie, how do you separate the lie from the truth so you don't go crazy? Living a lie can, in a sense, is a self-protection, but you also got the truth out there, which you can't deny so it's almost bifurcated. And I wonder if you think about that as the writer, but I think about that in everyday life. I think about actors. Actors are playing a role. And then they have to be, once the role is over in a movie, like the good German, they have to go back to being who they are. And I wonder sometimes if they get confused about the role they're playing and who they are in real life. 
Well, I think everybody does. And with spies, notoriously, it becomes, uh, it leads to forms of self-destruction. The pressure, the psychological crises that occur from mind to everybody. Right. I mean, your whole public performance is one from beginning to end is a lie. This can, you know, if you're amoral or completely uh, don't care about it or completely cynical, I guess you can live with that. But the usual situation is that most people can't fully live with it, and they begin to crack in one way or another. And therein, of course, lies the great character studies that are at the heart of espionage fiction that I really enjoy. You've been mentioned the same breath of a lot of great writers of the genre, and one of them is John le Carrier. I read his latest book, which I believe his son finished, Silverview. And what he's addressing over the, the length and breadth of his career is moral ambiguities. Are you also dealing with that, that morality is not just something easily defined and it kind of shifts shapes over the course of experiences, not just in your book, but in the real world of spying today? Very much so. I mean, I think this is the ultimate subject. Um, we all owe Le Perry a great debt of pleasure, by the way, and just a for the genre. I think he invented the modern espionage fiction field. Um, and everyone, therefore, is in his debt. But yes, I think the notion of them being exemplars of moral ambiguity is absolutely right. And very much what I find fascinating and want to explore. There was a line that I used once in, I think it was Istanbul Passage, one of the books, where I said, what do you do when there's no right thing to do? just two wrong things. I mean, are we saddled with, can we do the thing that's going to cause just less harm? Are we going to do something that's going to be not quite right, but at least not as bad as the other? And I thought we are faced with examples of this kind of moral ambiguity every day in our lives. We're always making these choices. It's just spies are making them on a really profound and often fatal level. Other people's lives can be involved. So it makes me think of what I call betrayal. I'm not going to do any spoiler alerts because I want people to pick up the book and make their own judgments. There's two characters that are very connected. One is a spy and the other one who's gone to the West now during the prisoner exchange and his ex-wife. And in a sense, there's not one betrayal. There's two. And I wonder if you thought about that when you put the second betrayal into the book because that really surprised me. Sure. Um, I mean, the short answer to that is absolutely, and I'm glad you picked up on it in just that way. You know, the title itself is meant to be, there's the initial exchange, which is a spy swap, but we are talking about many other things that get exchanged. Um, a person's loyalty, what do you do about a family that you're responsible for? What do you do about being in a society like East Germany, which is ultimately corrupting? but repressive, you're under surveillance all the time. Um, what would you exchange that for? And finally, in the background of this book, there is um, a description of a program that I think is not very well known. Uh, here, I'm, I was scarcely familiar with it when I started the research on this. But it turns out that between 1963, when the program started, and 1989, when the wall came down, there existed between the two Germanys, even though they didn't recognize each other, a whole system for buying political right. prisoners. Right. Essentially, the East Germans, because of the wall, had now a surplus of people in jail, who, some of whose crimes were just trying to get over the wall. 
and trying to leave East Germany. That had become a crime. The West Germans said, we'll pay Deutschmarks, we'll pay you hard currency to buy some of these people out. They felt they owed them that kind of moral obligation. From the West German point of view, all Germans were German citizens, and these people were languishing in jail. And if you could buy them out, why not? It was doing them a favor, it was doing something for the country, it was a moral obligation. But by doing so, they were also providing hard currency to a struggling economy which desperately needed it. So they were, in a sense, helping the East Germans who are perceived as the enemy in this situation. Here you have some real moral ambiguity. Is it wrong to trade in people? I suppose. Is it wrong to release somebody from prison if you have the wherewithal and they were innocent to begin with? And is it wrong to help help? set the foundations for this hostile society, which is right over the, over the wall. I think it, you know, the, it's just filled with questions like that, all of them, in a sense, unanswerable, but all of which have to be raised because otherwise, how are we ever going to go forward if we don't ask what we're doing at the time? Once again, this is the podcast, Artful Periscope. My guest is the talented writer. That's no secret right there. Uh, Joseph Cannon He's discussing his new book, The Berlin Exchange. If you don't mind, I'm going to share a quote I found from Philip Roth in his book, American Pastoral. And he says this, and I'm quoting hopefully accurately. The fact remains that getting people right is not what living is all about anyways. It's getting them wrong that is living, getting them wrong and wrong and wrong. Then after careful reconsideration, getting them wrong again. That's how we know we're alive, we're wrong. Do you, do you share that sentiment from Philip Roth? Yes, but I think the other side to that is that the reason we're failing is that we must also keep trying. I mean, the reason we keep getting it wrong is that we keep trying to get it right. I think we try to understand each other and we try to figure out who we are. We are to each other. And if we stop trying to do that, I agree with him. We stop the human experiment. I mean, that's that's what being alive really is. So it's the flip side of failure. It's the attempt to succeed. I'm going to mention another writer that's been a guest on this podcast, and just like you also a guest in my television program, Davidson and Company. And that's Paul Vidic, who I believe you know. I think you share some yes. commonalities, and he speaks very highly of you. And, I, and his, um, his last book was The Matchmaker, which came out early in this month in February. So both their books came out in the same time frame. And I wonder, no pun intended, because you cover same of the similar topics, but in different time frames. Do both of you have what I call a non-aggression pact, which covers the era and time frames you're going to write about? So you're not butting heads together. <laughs> well, we don't have a formal pact. Paul is a friend, um, and I remember the first time this came up, it, it had come to our attention that we were both completing books that were set in Berlin, um, and they were both scheduled for publication in February, and we thought, you know, let's turn that around. I mean, mine's 63, and his is much later as a time period, right. 20 years later, so there isn't, they're not directly competitive. But we didn't sit down and carve up, it wasn't like a Munich conference where you carve <laughs> up and say, you can have Czechoslovakia and you can have you know, the Sudetenland. And I doubt that this kind of coincidence would happen again because uh, it's the only time it's happened so far. But, uh, you know, I'm always, I like Paul. I like the book. Um, I think he's really good. And consequently, uh, the more the merrier. There's another... Uh plot twist in this book earlier on 
which once again, no spoiler alerts, but it ties in a sense two adversaries together in a very dramatic and dangerous way. There's a murder that takes outside a restaurant, all the primary characters in your book are inside interacting with each other. And then outside something happens and involves in a sense the black market, but that ties into this whole thing about exchanges between the East and the West. And when I read that in the postscript of your book, I think it really started in 1964, about 1989. I knew nothing about that. We had this general knowledge of the East versus the West, West Berlin, East Berlin, of the wall. Nobody went back and forth. And that's not necessarily an accurate picture that you portray in the book, but also in real life in that time frame. Yeah, and it was extensive. I mean, one of the things that surprised me was when I got some notion of the full scope of this program. We're talking about something, I mean, estimates vary, but by its nature, this is not the sort of thing that you can quantify easily because everybody sidesteps it and doesn't want to be associated with it. But of the various estimates that I've read, the generous one is that something like over 33,000 political prisoners during that time period were exchanged for hard currency. The usual fee was the equivalent of $10,000, but it was negotiated depending on the length of the uh, sentence that he was being released from, um, their position in society. I mean, if you were buying a doctor, for instance, it would cost more than if you were buying just a common laborer, right. etc. It was cynical in that way. And the monies that we were talking about are in billions of Deutschmarks and translate to American dollars as about $850 million. That's not nothing. That's really a substantial amount of money to be funneling into a really struggling East Germany that needs hard currency. As for the people who, as for the two characters who were involved in a crime, I mean, there is a death and both of them are complicit in this. And we therefore have a situation that I've explored before in other books, because I think it's an absolutely fascinating one, is what happened, you know, Two people can keep a secret if one of them is dead. Okay. What happens? What happens if two people share complicity in an act of violence and they are the only ones who know about it, and therefore his life is in the other one's hands, the other's life is in his hands. Um, if you translate that into a marriage or a love affair, in which each of them is the only person that could give the other one away. You have, I think, a really provocative situation. The ultimate act of violence in a, in a time frame ending World War II was the atomic bomb. You have a character who is a atomic scientist, and I wonder if you're thinking, was he based at all on Stefan Schell, I believe his name is in the book, Robert Oppenheimer, later on in life, probably regretted everything it did in terms of helping create the atomic bomb. Um, it's not directly based on him, but certainly they shared some of the same revisionist attitudes about what they were doing. Um, you know, one of the things that it's, it's easier for us because we're looking at this from the perspective of now, you know, we're looking at this as an act in the past, but when it was actually happening, one of the, uh, when I did Los Alamos, for instance, I deliberately said it in May 45, because up until then, up until VE Day, the great, the preponderant attitude 
at Los Alamos was the idea that Hitler could get the bomb was so literally unthinkable right. that every moral scruple that might be attached in developing it was simply swept aside and not really examined. After VE Day, when it becomes clear that the Nazis are not going to develop this weapon, and in fact they've lost the war, it's only then that the scientists begin to look at each other and think, what have we been doing here? What monster are we creating, this genie in the bottle that's never going to be put back and is now going to be used to kill people in Asia? It's then that you get a lot of sense of moral qualms, uh, uh, talk about moral ambiguities. I mean, this would be that at the most exponential level. There is a character in the current book who, in fact, has rethought um, some of his actions, is rethinking what his own complicity in helping to create this massive weapon was. I mean, everyone had, who was involved in some form of guilt about it, some more than others. But yes, I think that in the, in the same way that Oppenheimer went through real moral crisis, uh, he was a thoughtful, smart man, and consequently is really, you know, sensitive and alert to all of these nuances. Nothing is clear cut. It's not. It's not black and white. And I think that's true, really, not just these books, but espionage fiction in general. It's about the gray areas. You know, I think Larry, we once talked about World War II, probably when we were doing Los Alamos. Right. I, and I said, if you want to think about it in metaphorical terms, think of it as movies. I mean, World War II begins in movies with Casablanca. It's shot in early 42, and everything is sharp black and white, very clear cut. We know who the good guys are. We know what the Marseillaise stands for, etc. But the war ends with the third man, that very murky, everything is gray, everything is in a rain-slick street shadow where everything is and who is one what. I think that that kind of transition from clear black and white to real shady gray is that's the world that we've inherited. You know, we didn't inherit Casablanca. We inherited the third time. This is the world we've brought. So as I transition to my next segment, this is what I like to do with my last question. And I welcome all feedback, whether it's good or bad, positive or negative. Over the course of our discussion, and I'm always thrilled to have you, I want to remind the audience once again, the book is called The Berlin Exchange, and my guest is Joseph Cannon. What did I miss? What did I leave out? Oh, Larry, the easy thing to say is that you left nothing out. But in fact, you know, one of the problems in talking about books is there are always spoiler alerts, and you want the reader to discover any kind of plot development yourself. I guess I would say that one of the things that people um, don't focus on as much as I would like to have them focus on is the love story that's at the center of this. I think it's the hardest thing to write, that kind of uh, emotion between people. And I particularly like, I mean, I tell my story in dialogue, so that often what will happen is that I'll be writing a scene and you go over it and over it until it's somehow right. It's just the scene that you wanted. That's the pleasure. That's like uh, slam dunk hoops if, if you're playing basketball. It's uh, you know, part of that writing process. But I think the writing process, by definition, is very, very difficult to talk about. Uh, there's a little magical thinking involved. There's a lot of superstition. And sometimes there's just plain luck. 
they'll come to the end of the scene and someone says exactly what you wanted them to say. And you think, oh, okay, that, that works. So next time we do it, we'll start with the love story and then we'll work out from there. Well said. Well, the easiest thing for me is to sit back and listen to you. So I don't know when the next book's going to be in the pipeline, but it's a no-brainer. Always welcome listening to you, reading your books, and you are up at the upper echelon of the genre you write about. Joseph Cannon, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks, Larry. After the break, Kevin Baker, we have a discussion over here. We're talking about the HBO series, The Gilded Age, but Kevin knows a lot of things about a lot. But he's one of the experts on the history of New York City. So we'll be right back after this quick reset. The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com. I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome back to the podcast, Artful Periscope. Kevin Baker, I love this guy. He's a novelist, a story, and journalist, as well as a Guggenheim Fellow for History. And Kevin, we've had long conversations on the phone. We've done multiple interviews over the years, all a bit older <laughs> these days, a little bit gray or whatever. You look much better than I do. I thank you so much for spending some time with us. So when I spoke to you last time on the phone to see if you were going to be available, I said, I've been watching this series called The Gilded Age on HBO, and I've been listening to the companion podcast. And I said, if anybody understands the history of New York City (laughs) with your trilogy that you've written, starting with Dreamland, um, and I think ended with Strivers Row, you you understand that. So I've been watching it. You've been watching it. The actual phrase, the Gilded Age, connotes what? Um, Great to be on the show, Larry. Great to talk to you again and see you. Um, The Gilded Age was, I think it was Mark Twain's term, and it was about the enormous wealth certain Americans were piling up in the, you know, after the Civil War, really 1870s through the 1890s. Uh, but there were tremendous disparities in wealth, some of the worst that have ever existed in our in our country at that time. Uh, terrible poverty, um, even as a small set kind of dominating uh, American capitalism got very, very rich. And you saw this on display in major cities, especially, and especially in New York, uh, where they were just building all these enormous mansions uh, up and down Fifth Avenue and in a few other places. So it takes place in 1883. Yeah. This is these new mansions up on Fifth Avenue. Society, what was society like and with the older generation in, in different parts of Manhattan? Because they're trying to move uptown, but it wasn't always necessarily so. What was it like in different parts of Manhattan in terms of people that were privileged? Yeah, um, the kind of waves of immigration that had already been going on since the 1830s and 40s were kept pushing the rich up the island. Uh, so they were going to Fifth Avenue. They were going to, you had places like the Dakota that, uh, opens, I think during the Gilded Age and it's, you know, thought to be so far away, it might as well be in the Dakotas. That's why it got that nickname. Um, but they were determined to get up and get away from these immigrant masses who were really rapidly filling up, 
uh, filling up the city. You know, New York City at the time, before the consolidation, consisted of just Manhattan and part of the Bronx. And it had just become, in 1880, the first American city with a million inhabitants. So Brooklyn was its own city right. that had about 600,000 inhabitants. The whole, what we now think of as New York was about 2 million people. So this was enormous growth. It was enormously difficult. Uh, it was smelly. It was loud. It was kind of rancid, very corrupt. And so the rich kind of wanted to keep their distance as much as possible from the worst of that. So they started moving up from the thirties or so in the, the streets to, uh, you know, to uh, Central Park, the high 50s, 60s, 70s, and uh, try to keep some kind of distance between them and the, the newly arrived Americans. So you mentioned Central Park. I have a direct connection because yeah. the Central Park you see on the screen on the Gilded yeah. Age was actually recorded at Bethpage Restoration Village. Oh, okay. And I know yeah. that so well because I run all the trails there. So in the first <laughs> episodes, the carriage is going into blah, blah, Central Park, and I, I guess in one of the mansions. That is yeah. all set in Nassau County on Long Island at the Bethpage Restoration Village. So I'm watching oh, that, and I'm okay. saying, I know where this place is. I know where that place is. So for me, it was kind of cool just to say I know a little bit about where they're, where they're actually yeah. filming this. As, as you're watching, and I'm curious, but I think it's beautifully shot. Yes. Just standing yeah. back besides the history, which I want to further explore with you, because, you know, there's, there's fictional characters and there's real characters. As you're just watching it, what was your reaction? Oh, it's, it's a pretty reasonable facsimile. They do. And they do a pretty good job of that. And they do. And the, um, the, the bits they do of Fifth Avenue blocks, as much as they're able to do it, are pretty good, too. You know, it really has the look of the era. Right. So I give them I give them credit on that. Um, and, th and those houses were immense. I mean, one thing I find I found a little bit inaccurate was there's, you know, this this couple who are the nouveau riche on this, the Russells, right. and they have this huge house that everyone's astounded by, and they have to come see the huge house because it's so great. You would have been hard-pressed to make a house that would have impressed anybody by that point. I mean, you know, you, I don't know if you've seen the pictures of these places, but uh, they are just like chateaus, you know, uh, somehow stranded in New York. And they were, they, all of these houses were immense. They were like castles. They became, well, the Frick, for instance, became a museum. Right. You know, I believe Tiffany's was somebody's home originally. You know, this is an immense scale that was being built, built all the time. So I don't know how much you would have necessarily impressed somebody at that point. Well, how about the aspect that's addressed in the HBO series? And I'm not getting any money, any money to promote it. And I just like watching it. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. the the Russells, which are new money versus old yes. money. That's that's accurate. They, the, the new money is always trying to break into the old money and the old money is resisting them. And that's part of the thread throughout the series. And, and but in New York and in America in general, um, class and money and what was acceptable was cha was always changing rapidly. I mean, you have very accurately the Miss, you know, Mrs. Astor, who was kind of the doyen of society. Right. Um, she had uh, her name originally was Skirmahorn, which incidentally was pronounced Skirman. The old Dutch the way, Dutch, back right, then. Right. Dutch name, so it should have been Scareman. Uh, but you know, the, she had married into the Astor family. But you know, who were the Astor? She married the grandson of John Jacob Astor, 
who started life in a butcher shop in Germany, uh, came to America, was a fur trader, and then uh, smuggled um, opium into China. You know, that's the old, the thing Balzac kind of said, which is that behind every great fortune is a crime. You know, this is what he was, very crude man. He was, you know, his his descent, you know, uh, children and all tried to kind of push him into society then uh, in the 1830s and 40s and reputedly uh, um, Esther would, would take out, when he got really bored in these society evenings, he would take out his chewing tobacco and draw designs on the windows. You know, so this was this was a pretty crude place that a lot of people were coming from who a generation or two later were declaring themselves to be, you know, the, the determiners of who was fit to be in society. Also, you know, ethnically, the Astors were probably part Jewish, although they made up this whole huge elaborate genealogy to pretend they were not. Um, you know, America and New York was always a mixed bag from the beginning, but one group would put on these airs and sort of make out that, well, they were old money and they knew how to, how things act, you know, how things were supposed to work. Um, it shifted quickly. You know, the Vanderbilts by the 1880s in reality were, were fighting, you know, pushing their way into society. They were hugely rich. Um, you know, you just weren't going to be able to resist the money for very long. So is this the essence of the robber barons, where they came from? They were robber barons. They came from these crude backgrounds and they amassed these fortunes and with the money came power, but they came from uh, these rugged backgrounds and this is how they became robber barons and then the head of this great class of society in New York City. Yeah, very much so. I mean, Vanderbilt starts off, the original Vanderbilt, the Commodore, starts off uh, you know, taking a, a small ferry across Vanderbilt, across uh, New York Harbor from Staten Island to Manhattan. That's how he, he he turns this into first a steamboat empire and then a railroad empire, a financial empire. Uh, it's astounding the success they have. Uh, and a lot of times through enterprises, they really did build up themselves. Uh, you know, um, of course, then they tried to protect these empires through all you know sorts of foul means and terribly exploited uh, the people who worked for them the people who lived in their in the cities they had uh, they had built but uh, but they really you know they knew what they were doing to a great degree my guest is Kevin Baker this is the podcast the artful periscope so below these classes clashes of new money and old money, Below them, if there's a middle class and lower classes, was there a version of the American dream? Uh, yeah, and there were people coming in, fighting to work their way up. Uh, they were much more interested in collective action then, too. I mean, socialism was, you know, gaining more adherence all the time. Um, you know, there were more immigrants coming in there, but, you know, there were, there were these kind of radical surges, which were usually defeated, but, um, they were starting to form labor unions, such as the Knights of Labor, who were, you know, becoming, uh, an enormous organization for a while. Um, you know, people felt that was the way they were going to have to have to make it to the top, but yeah, they very much, there were a lot of stories, you know, um, about uh, kind of popular literature about, you know, kids just making it up, you know, on, on their own. Uh, that was, you know, that were very popular. It was, um, you know, it was a place w- even then where everybody felt they could succeed uh, and one, one way or the other. 
So how accurate is Henry James' book, Washington Square, and other books in that time frame? Are they reflecting accurately what's going on, or are they another companion piece to the Gilded oh, Age series? Oh, yeah. I mean, they're, they're pretty accurate. And, of course, James is a great writer. He hated, though, what was happening to New York. You know, he had been born not far from uh, Washington Square, and he hated Washington Square Park, and he hated to see what was happening. He's practically the only person I know of who disliked the Brooklyn Bridge when it opened, he right. felt it was right. mechanical and ugly and he hated what was happening to America, which was one reason he spent most of his life and most of his adult life in England. Uh, but uh, yeah, the city was changing rapidly. They do mention in the series, the bridge is finally about to open after 14 years of work, which was also going to, you know, really transform New York, the Brooklyn bridge. Um, so this was uh you know, so this is fairly accurate. I mean, the, the, what Fellows has a little problem with, there are a couple different things. Uh, the, the, the director of the series, Fellows. James, yeah, yeah, and the, and Julian the creator. Fellows, right? The creator, Fellows. yes, yes. Yeah, he, he, judging by this and Downton Abbey, he has a lot of trouble knowing what to do with the Irish. You know, for instance, like Mrs. Russell, the the the, uh, the, the woman in the Nouveau Riche couple is supposed to be an Irish Catholic. And there are very few great um, Catholic ladies at the time. Uh, and the other hand, he has the politicians all being kind of old money and they're, they're manipulating stocks down on wall street, but they're old money families and names. Um, a lot of the politicians already would have been Irish. I mean, Tammany was a big going concern. Um, you know, this is, these are the sort of people who Russell would have been dealing with more if, if he wanted to get a, um, you know, one of the central things in the series, he wants to get a big new train station built, uh, though for the people he would have been dealing with. And they would not have been so much manipulating stocks as fellows has them as going and grabbing land parcels near the new thing. You know, there's the old saying that it cut open an Irishman's heart and you find the word land written there. <laughs> you know, this is how they operated. It was George Washington Plunkett, you know, Plunkett of Tammany Hall, writing about what he called honest graft. And honest graft consisted of like getting inside information on things like this. And, you know, you want to build Central Park, you want to build Grand Central, great. And we'll, you know, we'll help you do that for a price, but we'll also grab all the parcels near it and make money on that. Um, and so that's, that's something that's a little wrong in the, in the series. Uh, honest graph is the ultimate oxymoron, by the way. I just want to go back to actually visually watching yeah. the series. Um, yeah. What st stood out in me, and this is where the research comes in, the clothing that they're wearing, the amount and type of food is mind-boggling. And I didn't know this, but the Opera House was once again an extension of where you were in the hierarchy. I believe there were yeah. only 16 places that were set aside specially, booths, whatever they call that, balcony, whatever they were. Yeah. And boxes. Boxes, yeah. thank yeah. you. And the, one of the characters gets inv uh, invited to go and trying to step up in the world of high society. But you had to pretty much die to get another one of those in the opera. And I just like the way that is rendered in the series, whether or not that was accurate. But 
I'm, yeah. I don't know who where the budget comes for food and clothing because I, I was on the way in. I was listening to one of the earlier podcasts, and they're saying that was real food. They had a tremendous chef that created the food for this series, and every time they made a break in the filming, they were eating the food. It was <laughs> it was real food, and there's a scene it's early on when Mrs. Russell invites everybody to her grand home, and all these invitations go out. And nobody shows up. And one or two people show up. And all the food is laid out. <laughs> lobster to everything you could think of on this huge table. And nobody shows up. And in the peak, I think she donates it or something. But yeah, just yeah. the way they portray this, the clothing, the food, the opera house, says to me, it may not be accurate. But boy, it captured my attention. Oh, visually, I think it's very accurate and and very well done. Um, yeah, the uh, the clothes look right. The you know the fixings look right. The the kind of um, conspicuous consumption, Veblen's word for the society in the Gilded Age, you know, was right. This is the sort of way they lived in these you know fantastic displays of wealth. Um, yeah, I think he's he's they've got that all down, and they've and they've got you know some of the characters down in an interesting way i mean uh first of all it's christine baranski uh who would make anything worth watching is in it and she plays this character who's kind of a snob kind of a an old money figure right. at the same point she's very friendly and supportive of this black woman secretary who she hires um you know which you would have had too kind of what we think of as odd now, but you had people who were snobs who were also had been very pro-abolitionist during the war and were for, you know, for black rights. Um, so that's the, the kind of intricacies of New York society at the time. They get pretty right, uh, you know, much of the time. You know, I want to switch gears a little bit, but I want to say in the same area of television. Yeah. That I did not know this about you, and I think I knew a lot about, but I learned that there's so much I didn't know about you that is so impressive. <laughs> Thank you. I interviewed Caleb Carr for the book The Alienist when it came out. Anybody yeah. knows yeah. the history? Lucien Carr was his father and was involved in a murder. And were you? did you work on the TV adaptation of The Alienist, which I watched and I loved? I did. I did a little work on that, both the writing and the research. And, um, you know, I, I think we really kind of improved on some of the accuracy of stuff at the time. You know, no, no nothing is going to be, including my own work, is going to be, com you know, completely accurate. But I think we kind of got down uh, more of what it was like and the feeling of it. I mean, it's, right. it's very dark in a lot of places, very it, it simply the city looks dark, but it would have been, you know, before electric light came in. Um, so I think it was pretty accurate in that sense. And they did a, they did a great job with the sets and the look and in general. Now, this hasn't come to the TV screens yet, but are you working on a PBS series with Ken Burns? Lynn, yep. I did Lynn a lot of work on that America and the Holocaust. Right. And so, it's about, um, what we knew and didn't know about the Holocaust and what we didn't, didn't do as a, as a country. So fascinating topic although of course you know terribly depressing but um but yeah that's it was amazing to work with with him and with jeff ward and uh and with lynn and novick uh you know uh, who's worked for a long time with uh, 
with Ken. Um, you know, it's a terrific experience. I think it's supposed to be out in the fall now. So where does where does this energy come from? Uh, years ago, you invited him to New York Historical Society, and you were on a panel with his brother. And his brother's pretty yeah. talented too. But he keeps oh, yeah. turning these series out on baseball. Did he do the Hemingway series? By the way, I'm not sure he did Hemingway. Yes. Yeah. Because I'm, he, um, I'm, I'm going to get. I'm got to get a book sent with me for a future uh, interview about Hemingway's last wife, which I'm looking forward to reading. So mm-hmm. I don't understand. I, I imagine there's a lot of people that help him. You can't do this by yourself with the research and everything else. But everything he, on the Civil War that he did, everything yeah. that he does is amazing. So where does that drive come from? Uh, you know, he, he is. It's He's terrific to work for, work with. He has a wonderful group of people who have been working with him for years, you know, for, for some of them 20, 25 years. Um, and, uh, you know, he has a, a small office in New York. Um, and a much bigger one up in uh, up in uh, uh, New Hampshire there, um, right. you know, just across New Hampshire, Vermont, but just uh, across the border there. But um, uh, great big house full of their productions. At any given time, they have five different productions in the works starting. It's like a regular pipeline. And he had us. I did a little work on the the uh, second um, baseball. The documentary he did kind of moving into the present time and so he had all of us up there beautiful summer day we all he bought us all lunch we were all out in the the backyard of this big house uh, you know and and he was <laughs> ken burns comes out and says like you know isn't this great it's it's like going on vacation <laughs> without having to worry about trying to find something to do and I thought, just you know, spoken like a true workaholic. I mean, he works on these documentaries. He goes around and raises money for them and for PBS in general. Uh, he just works constantly at an amazing pace um, and still manages to be, you know, a, a pretty nice guy. So, well, that, that, uh, that's yeah. interesting in itself because sometimes you get caught up in your persona of who you are. The first time we ever sat down together was for your baseball yeah. book. Sometimes you can see it coming. Then I yeah. know you had an interesting experience writing Reggie Jackson's book, which, yes. which we've talked yeah. about, came in, I think, in 2013. But where am I going with this, Kevin Baker? Are you working on a baseball book right now? I, I am pretty much finished. I have It's way too long, so I've got to edit it down severely, which was an ongoing process. But I finished this book on, uh, you know, uh, we, what we're tentatively calling it the New York game. Okay. And really what we think of as baseball started from the rules used by New Yorkers to play baseball. That became the game. You know, they're all, you know, everybody and his brother claims to have started it. People were playing bat and ball games pretty much from the moment we got off the Savannah, you know, but really what is modern baseball is the New York game. So the book is about uh, the game and the city over the last couple hundred years. And uh, I think I probably should have thought it out more before I started on it. It's uh, such a huge amount of stuff to do, but, um, you know, because everything happened in baseball in New York uh, and everything happened in the city. So it's, it was a bigger project than I had thought getting into it, but a lot of fun. You and I are baseball fans. Yes. There's no mystery there. Yes. 
they just had one inductee to the Hall of Fame, Vic Poppy. Came from Minnesota to Boston Red Sox, and he was a totally different player in Boston. I am adamant about putting people in in the steroid era who've been proven they use been using steroids. Clemens, A. Rod, yeah. people like that. And the argument is, well, it's a steroid era, and a lot of them did it, and not everybody got caught. Now, Big Poppy was on that list, but it never came out. And that's the rationale. But I'm curious about your thoughts about that. It's an ongoing debate, and people are saying as the older sports writers, aging, get out. Eventually, A-Rod's going to get in. Clemens is going to get in. I'm leaving somebody else out, too, that the, the, the trying, but it's in third person they're talking about that should have, based on their records, should get uh, bonds. Mm-hmm. But all three of them, without taking steroids, would have gone into the Hall of Fame no matter what. They got caught up on that. They wanted to be bigger and better. When you saw the picture of Bonds before and after, his head was like right. five times larger. I'm, I'm exaggerating. He was going to the Hall of Fame. A-Rod yeah. was going to the Hall of Fame. So I'm curious about your thoughts about does it make a difference that you use steroids and you didn't get caught or you got caught because you would have gone in anyway? Well, that's an interesting question, and I think – really the baseball writers have to address this better because where they're at now makes no sense. I mean, yeah, as you say, Bonds and Clemens had Hall of Fame careers before they started using. Um, A-Rod, it's not clear when he started using. It might have even been in high school because of this whole terrible, corrupt Florida culture, uh, sports culture. But, um, you know, they they have to decide this because as it is now, it's inane. I mean, Big Poppy admitted using steroids. Yeah. So did yeah. Mike Piazza. And their thing, their thing with Mike Piazza was they kept him out the first three times, I think, right. and then let him in. You know, and Big Poppy, you know, he is a winning person. So it's sort of become now uh, you can't get into the Hall of Fame using steroids unless you have a good personality and the sports writers like you, which is the worst criteria. You know, I can see an argument – against letting anybody in who juiced i can see an argument for letting them in but you you can't do what the baseball writers of america are doing now it's it's absurd you know there's no reason why you know they're probably not going to put manny ramirez in yeah oh uh you know because he was not as friendly in the clubhouse as big poppy you know and it's like this should never be just the hall of fame should not be just people you like you know, it's um, it's got to be uh, there has to be some criteria for this, even though the criteria have changed a lot over the years. And that's not the worst thing. But uh, but, yeah, the way it is now is is ridiculous. So um, so what about Pettit, the pitcher for the Yankees? And then later on for Houston, he admitted and he came out and had an injury. I used it. Oh, yeah. And you can recover from injuries use, using yeah. various forms of steroids. But uh, I don't think he used it for an advantage in terms of being a fast, faster pitcher or whatever. He used it to recover faster from his injury. Yeah. And, and that's what a lot of it does, too. It makes you able to right. do all these tremendous, you know, Clemens was always felt like, you know, he had done nothing wrong because all this enabled him to do was to do these amazing workouts. Well, but that's what it helps you to do. That's the, the advantage. And, you know, a lot of these other players have kind of a point. I've heard them, you know, you look at somebody like Jorge Posada, who was the second best catcher in the American League for most of his career. Yeah. Well, you know, he's the second best catcher behind Pudge Rodriguez, who admitted, you know, where was caught using steroids all the time. You know, without that, he's maybe the best catcher in the American League for 10 years and go right into the hall. You know, uh, Bernie Williams, I think, brought this up saying, you know, as one of these guys who's played against 
juicers all his career. Shouldn't his, you know, shouldn't he be in the Hall of Fame? He has a point. You know, if he wasn't juicing, which he doesn't seem to have been, you know, you know, why isn't he in the Hall? Um, it's got to be resolved one way or the other. My um, favorite character of all time, because he's not going in when he was a true character, was Lenny Dykstra. Before yes. the Mets, he was thin, and then we went. Then he he blew up big time. Now Lenny Dykstra is got his own issues with money and drugs yes. and everything else. <laughs> but you kind of sense you kind of kind of love him because he's still a crazy nut out there. But you saw the dramatic changes in him too. Obviously, yeah. he was he was juicing. Yeah. He was juicing. Yeah, and that's kind of the tragedy of that 1986 team in the Mets, which is, you know, I don't think it was the greatest team of all time, but it was probably the greatest young team right. ever. Right. And that right. just, you know, they won once. And, you know, Davey Johnson, the manager, made such a fetish of letting them do whatever they wanted. And that builds team loyalty. Well, it built team loyalty for a year. And then, like, all these guys had, like, you know, serious uh, substance abuse problems, you know, they were juicing, they were doing this and that. So, you know, I think they, they really would have been better off trying to guide their behavior in different ways, you know, so, but that's, that's one of the great tragedies of New York baseball. What happened to those guys? See, if anybody asked me how old I was at a certain time, I'm terrible about counting backwards. What, how old were you in 1977? 1977, I was 19 years old. Um, so what is this book I just heard about, which I never knew called Luna Park? <laughs> Luna Park is a, um, is a comic book, actually, sorry, graphic novel that I did <laughs> where for, uh, uh, for DC comics or vertigo comics, uh, the vertigo imprint. So, uh, and it's a, a lot about, um, you know, it's in, in the, in the great comic tradition, time travel, time, you know, people through different times and all set out on Coney Island, great illustrations by Daniel JJ, my, my fellow author there on that, who did the, uh, the visual part of it, but, uh, you know, fun thing. If you can, if you can find it, pick it up. <laughs> It'll be a fun read. So listen, lend the book. I wasn't aware of it. In 2019, did you write about Afghanistan? Uh, I don't think I wrote about Afghanistan. In two, oh, yes, no, I did write something about Afghanistan in 2019. Um, and just, you know, basically my feeling was that, uh, that, you know, I think Biden did the right thing. I think he did the tough thing there by getting out. Uh, there was no way that was going to end well. And there was a huge amount of criticism directed at him, uh, a lot by the media, a lot by people who I think, were terrified that people they had known and met when to help them there were, you know, not going to get out. And that's, it's understandable. It's nice. They're concerned about those individuals, but the idea that, you know, young American men and women were supposed to be in there dying indefinitely to try to prop up this completely corrupt regime, uh, you know, for no discernible purpose uh, is, it was grotesque, and I felt the media was was largely wrong about how they depicted it, and uh, that Biden was right to go. Well, I'm getting the high sign. I got to get out of here. I could spend hours and hours with you. I want to thank Joseph Cannon. His new book is called The Berlin Exchange, and I also want to thank somebody I have great respect for. Honestly, one of the nicest guys in the business is Kevin Baker. Kevin, thank you so much. 
Thank you, Larry. And uh, I love the Hofstra hat, by the way. Yeah, uh, I still have my I season, just, season tickets I, for a Hofstra basketball right behind the bench. I, I'm just sad they changed the name. That was such a great name, the Flying Dutchman. Flying Dutchman. <laughs> you could relate to that, but I guess they had to be, uh, I don't know what the reason was. I know. They wanted, every once yeah. in a while, they, when they throw T-shirts out into the stands, they have the old T-shirt saying the Flying Dutchman, which I uh, love. But the pride is, is not bad. I'm kind of getting used to that. But yeah, when they, when they yeah. made the change at St. John's to the Red Storm, yeah. I understand why they had to do it. But still took a while to have it access in my mind. And they've changed the name for the obvious reasons to the Red Storm. But that's, yeah. you know, we have to keep going on, Kevin, no matter what. <laughs> we do. We do. So. All right. Till next time, I'm Larry Davidson. Bye-bye. The Artful Periscope podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Cristofaro, sound editors and engineer, Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa, and you can find her music at starfrost.com. October Blues is performed by Dana Songs and can be found at danasongs.com. If you enjoy this podcast, visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at larrydavidsonsproductions.com. You can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. Tired to her